Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. First, just some housekeeping stuff. I know everybody's looking for the second half of the Deanna Kremen case. Unfortunately, there will be no interview going forward. I will go back and revisit this case if anything new comes to light. But it looks like at this point, we just have the one episode. Sorry about that, guys. Also, guys, it was pointed out to me. I made yet another mistake. I know you're shocked. Janine pointed out to me, Janine's a a listener of the show, that I often confuse Walpole State Prison with Sousa Baranowski. Now, I do this all the time, and I can't even make the promise that I can correct it going forward. When I was a kid, Walpole was the big boy prison. That was the threat. That was, oh, he did time at Walpole. Well, you're going to Walpole, the cops would say, and you'd crap your pants because it was full of riots, rapes. It was just misery. And I think it is still a maximum security prison, but it was replaced by Sousa Baranowski, which is in Shirley, Massachusetts, very far from Walpole. So I do apologize for that. And the facility was named for two corrections officers that were killed, Sousa and Baranowski. That's where the name comes from. There's also a prison farm out in Shirley and all that. But when you hear Sousa Baranowski, that is the supermax of Massachusetts. Walpole, I still believe, is a maximum security prison, but it's no longer the prison it once was. Thanks, Janine. Sorry about that. Also, guys, we're looking to do some events. We're going to do something online, a roundtable discussion. We haven't really figured the whole thing out yet. But as the weather continues to get warmer, we'll be looking to do a live event somewhere in Boston. So I'll keep you apprised of that as we go. Additionally, guys, I love your emails. If you need to get a hold of me, feel free to contact me at barry at bostonconfidential.net, and we can go back and forth on email. All right, guys, let's get to it. Today we have on deck Matthew Borges. This case is absolutely insane, and we don't have to jump back into the time machine. This case happened in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 2016. Matthew Borges was 15 at the time, and I guess he'd be a high school sophomore, as I have a 15-year-old son, and he's a sophomore as well. But let me start by telling you a little bit about Lawrence, Massachusetts. Lawrence is a hard scrabble city and there's no getting around it. It's a former mill town, a massive mill town. And when the mills left Massachusetts and when the mills left the United States, there was really nothing for the residents to do. Lawrence for decades now has been plagued by crime, arson, and just a host of social dysfunction up there. It's actually towards the border of New Hampshire and New Hampshire-ites or New Hampshire residents 
complain that a ton of drugs come from Massachusetts into New Hampshire, not just Southern New Hampshire, but all over. And they come from Lawrence, Massachusetts. There's a heavy Dominican population in Lawrence. And for whatever reason, Dominicans seem to be involved in the distribution of heroin, at least in the Massachusetts area. So due to the fact that there's not much industry anymore in Lawrence, the tax base is just mostly residential and it just doesn't facilitate a good school system. All these kids I'm going to talk to you about were going to Lawrence High School, but sad to say Lawrence High School is just a place to leave. And if you had any other options, you would probably take them. I would not put my child into Lawrence High School. And unfortunately, a lot of the parents don't have the ability to send them to private or Catholic school in the area. So you're kind of stuck with this festering wound of a school, you know. And I know that sounds harsh, and I don't mean it fully that way, but I'm trying to get across what the city of Lawrence is. It's very hard scrabble, guys. So this story seems to focus around two teenage boys. They were friends, actually. The victim's name is Lee Polino, and the perpetrator in this case was Matthew Borges. And both were 15. I think Paulino may have just turned 16, but they were both sophomores, and they were friends. They had this group of friends. And it's just kind of bewildering, this case, how this all plays out. And I guess I'll just tell you the story. So when I look at the story, I see kind of a typical teenage drama here. But what happened went completely off the rails. Matthew Borges had been dating his girlfriend, Liliana De Jesus, And De Jesus, Borges, Polino, and a whole group of kids were friends. Like they had known each other coming up in Lawrence, and they all went to school together. So Matthew Borges is dating Liliana De Jesus. Borges seems to be getting very possessive. And even when she's talking to friends of theirs, mutual friends, Borges gets possessive. And at one point, he screamed at her inside Lawrence High School and had her to be escorted from the area because she was having a conversation. It seems to be kind of a joking, jovial conversation with Lee Polino. And he had to be escorted from the area by a teacher and it was kind of a heated argument. But later, this Jesus, the girlfriend, would come on and say that Borges was very controlling. And he seemed to really be going in a dark direction. He was always commenting about Lee Polino and her relationship with that. And they were legitimately just friends, but Borges couldn't let it go. Matthew Borges had this crazy hairdo, kind of like the Patrick Mahomes style back then. It was 2016, so it's kind of shaved closely on the sides, but like a crazy afro in the middle. And Mahomes wore it a little shorter. If you look at pictures of Borges in court, it's just kind of a ridiculous hairdo. But I'm an older guy, so styles change, but... Looked ridiculous to me. Lee Paulino was kind of a bubbly personality. They liked how he dressed. They were kind of envious of him. And by they, I'm saying Borges and the rest of the crew. And 
he was a good-looking kid and popular. He was much more popular than Matthew Borges, and obviously some jealousy was setting in. But again, I keep coming back to the fact that this is just typical teenage drama. And back in my day, guys didn't really get involved in this BS, but I guess they do now. So this whole cadre of friends, they're kind of warring with each other a little bit, and they're led by Matthew Borges against Lee Polino. So it would come out at trial that Matthew Borges had set up this score, and it's kind of unnerving for a 15-year-old kid. So the plan was this. Matthew Borges was going to fake that he was making amends with Lee and go over to his house and tell him, you know, he's got some weed. And the Merrimack River was right by Lee's house. And so Borges states, you know, let's go down, we'll smoke some weed and talk and stuff like that. So Lee was kind of happy that the friendship was getting back on track, but he really didn't know what was coming. Matthew Borges sets up with a couple other of this group when he leaves the house with Lee to go smoke grass, they were going to rob Lee. They were going to steal his PlayStation, his clothes, his belts. That's where this envy comes in, guys. I think this was a hard scrabble community. Maybe these kids didn't have the PlayStation, the latest PlayStation. They envied Lee for his clothes and his style and all this. And this was Matthew Borges' way of getting back at him. And so they scheduled this to happen. And there is videotape documentation of Borges luring Lee Polino out of the house and they walk down towards the river. This is about seven o'clock. A short time later, this group shows up and I think they do go in and commit this robbery. And the people who go into Rob Lee's house were also his friends. It's hard for me to get over that growing up in South Boston. It was just a diametrically opposed type neighborhood situation. We'd just never do that. We'd fight. We committed crimes. We had no angels. But it would be a fist fight. This is about to get insane, and I should probably give you a warning. It's going to get very graphic very soon. So if you can't handle that type of episode and you've got a bail, I don't blame you on this one. So Lee lived in what I believe is a triple-decker. It's just three multi-family units in one house. Very common in Lawrence, very common in all of Massachusetts, really. And family lived on each level in Lee's building there. So it was extended family everywhere for him. But I think it was kind of a come-and-go house for Lee's friends. They were in and out all the time, and these kids are now going to rob them. Just heartbreaking. So it's about 7 p.m. on November 18th, 2016, and you can see on videotape Matthew Borges leading Lee Polino out of his house, and they walk like there's nothing wrong down towards the river. It's kind of haunting when you know what's coming. So the duo get down there, and they start smoking weed, but something goes pretty haywire pretty quickly with Matthew Borges. Matthew ends up stabbing Lee Polino in excess of 75 times. He had been stabbed so many times, the coroner could not tell what stab wounds happened when he was alive and what happened when it was post-mortem. So it does get worse from there, and it's just absolutely insane for a 15-year-old kid to do this 
but I'm just going to say it. He decapitated Lee Polino and he cut his hands off. And I just can't believe it. I can't imagine how long that took and what this kid's thought process was. But he sawed the kid's head off and he cut his hands off. And he later said he thought he'd do that just so he wouldn't get caught. But this has to be one of the crappiest plans I've ever seen in terms of trying to get away with a homicide. It doesn't even seem like he wanted to get away with it, really. So Lee is not discovered missing until the next morning. But when he is discovered missing, his family goes directly to the Lawrence police because this was so out of character for Lee. Lee was a decent student. He wanted to be a writer. Everybody in the family loved him. He stayed out of trouble, which is pretty remarkable in Lawrence, Massachusetts, let me tell you. And the Lawrence police, for their part, did not put this on the back burner. They started looking for him right away. They could see that the family knew this was so out of character for Lee Polino. So the search for Lee continues, and Matthew Borges is not out looking for him, I'll tell you that. So it quickly becomes apparent that Matthew Borges was the last to see Lee alive. The Lawrence police quickly scooped up all that video. I guess there's door cameras, the door videos across the street from Lee's house, and they come up with that pretty quickly. What I don't think the police knew at that time was, yeah, they had the video of Lee leaving with Matthew, but I don't think they were looking to see the video because just after they had left, Matthew had lured Lee out of the house and the other members of this group, the group of friends, come to rob Lee, steal his stuff, steal his PlayStation, steal his belts, his clothes. It's crazy. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there briefly. We got a message from one of our sponsors and then I'll jump in right after we're done, okay? Paranormal author Eve S. Evans introduces a brand new spine-chilling release, True Ghost Stories of First Responders, available on Amazon today. First responders with any real time on the job believe in ghosts. They've experienced events they can't otherwise explain. Same with other professions that deal with injuries, accidents, or death. Police officers, firemen, 9-11 operators, they've seen the worst that people can do to one another and they've all had brushes with the unexplained. Don't believe in ghosts? This book might change your mind and steal any hope of sleep. These stories are unexplainable, true accounts from first responders, police officers, firemen, 9-11 operators, told from the perspective of everyday people. Every single tale between these covers is 100% true. Think you can explain them? We dare you to try. If you delight in ghostly books and material, feel free to also check out Eve's podcast, Bone Chilling Tales to Keep You Awake, for weekly true paranormal creepy stories available on Apple and all major podcasting networks, and it's also available on YouTube as narrated and as an animated experience. All right, guys, that was our new sponsor, True Ghost Stories of First Responders. It's on Amazon today. Check it out. So it took about two weeks for Lee Polino's body to be found. And he was found by a gentleman, a local guy walking his dog. And he didn't know what he'd come across at first. But 
When he did, he panicked and called the Lawrence Police Department. Lawrence Police Department get there and they see this headless body and they know this is just massively out of the ordinary. And they see all the stab wounds on Lee's body and they know this is not like a stranger danger type situation. This is a passionate hate. Whoever did this hated Lee Polino. And I think pretty quickly they narrowed it down to Matthew Borges. Now, Matthew was the last person to have been seen with him, and now they have video of him coming out of the house and walking down towards the river, and that's where Matthew was found. So it's one thing after another building up on Borges. There's an interesting excerpt online, a Massachusetts State Police detective interviews Matthew Borges, and they play it in court. And it's in a couple of the excerpts, so you can probably find it pretty easily on YouTube. But Matthew just does not care. He's sitting there talking to a Massachusetts State Police detective who probably thinks that you committed this grisly homicide and his voice is just flat. No real emotion. The State Police detective kind of jacks him up a little bit just to get a little rise out of him. But there's not much emotion there. And if you see Matthew Borges throughout this trial, nothing. He reacts to nothing. The medical testimony was just grisly. This kid didn't blink an eye. He's a scary dude. So the Lawrence police and the Massachusetts State Police now, because it is a homicide, start interviewing those around him, his girlfriend, or was his ex-girlfriend. I had just learned that Liliana de Jesus She's identified in this case as his girlfriend, but Borges had broken up with her thinking that she had been unfaithful with all these guys, Lee Polino, but more than that, Matthew Borges seemed to be developing some type of paranoia when it came to Liliana de Jesus, and it just wasn't true. They were all friends, and at this age, you're kind of all friends together, you know, but Borges thought that there was this romantic relationship with Lee Polino and all these other guys, and it was just crazy. So at a certain point in the interrogation with the Mass State Police detective, Borges says, I know this doesn't sound good. And I think it was the next day that the detective threw it back at him. He says, no, Matthew, this stuff doesn't sound good. You're the last person to be seen with them. So as the investigation proceeds outward, they come across Liliana de Jesus and a couple other people. Jonathan Miranda was one of them. He was in this group of friends, and he was kind of like the leader that Borges had commissioned to do this robbery. There was a few other kids with them, but you can actually see on the video after Lee and Borges leave Lee's house, these three or four other kids come back a few minutes later to Lee's house, and that's also caught on camera. And Jonathan Miranda was one of them. Miranda ended up testifying against Borges in this. Guys, something I have to relay, I'm unclear as to if the kids, including Miranda, who went to Polino's house to rob him, if they actually committed this robbery, and was Miranda working off a plea deal to testify against Borges. I don't know. This case is kind of strange in that there's not one definitive account. It's kind of separated over networks and newspapers. There's not one 
unifying document on this. So research on this was a bit difficult. So I don't know if they actually stole Lee's PlayStation, his clothes and all that, but Miranda ends up testifying and it's kind of the nail in the coffin. And I'll tell you about that right now. So it's no mystery here that Matthew Borges was arrested for this crime, and it was just a matter of time. I think the only real delay in it was finding Lee's body, and then the city of Lawrence went crazy. The whole state did, really. This was just so barbaric, and the perpetrator was so young. It's one of those stories that just stands out. So Matthew Borges gets pinched for it, and... The strange thing about this case is I always wondered why there was need for a trial, really. I don't know why. They probably weren't offering much in the way of a plea bargain, but I think part of it may have been the defense because there's no DNA in this case. Strangely, there's no DNA. There is no eyewitness. There's no murder weapon. But I'll tell you what they do have. They had Jonathan Miranda, who stated on the stand that Matthew had called him or one of the others of this group and told him directly that he had killed Lee Polino and cut his head off. This was backed up by another member of the group uh, whose name escapes me. And then his girlfriend, DeJesus, also provided some damning testimony about his state of mind and how controlling he was. There was also a damning kill note found on Borges's dresser, and it read, Kill him, get duffel bag, wear gloves, clean up the mess, wear bags on shoes, wear clothes you don't care about. The defense did not argue that Matthew had written this note. There was also something else where he had a text message conversation with one of his girlfriends or other friends, uh, Stephanie Sereno, I think her name was, and that went words to the effect about dead eyes, that people who kill have these dead eyes. Just an aside, people who've been in war say there's a hundred yard stare. And I think what this kid was trying to get to was this hundred yard stare where you kind of have seen so much action and misery that you're kind of dead inside. And Matthew said, next time you'll see me take a good look at my eyes because they're going to change pretty soon because he was planning this murder, obviously. So I guess the defense really had no alternative, but I'm not sure they could have taken a plea bargain for what they ended up with at sentencing anyways. But this testimony went against Borges from Jump Street, and I think the lawyers, if they had recommended that Borges go to trial, were kind of crapping their pants at this point because... They had put on Jonathan Miranda, followed by another friend in that group who stated, yeah, right afterwards, Matthew Borges told us he killed him and cut his head off. So this was going south for Matthew pretty quickly. And I got to tell you, watch some of this trial. There's not an ounce of emotion, not even an ounce of interest into what's going on around this kid. He's a scary kid. And so the defense starts playing these crazy semantic games. I saw an interaction during the trial where they were disputing the time that Lee Polino was in the water. And this was just on the heels of the testimony of the friends. We say, yeah, he called us after the murder and told us he did it. I'm like, you're splitting hairs here. 
I guess you have to earn your paycheck, and the deck was stacked against the defense, but it was just lame. I guess the defense was counting on the lack of physical evidence in this case and what they described as lack of motive. But the Commonwealth provided motive with the girlfriend and the imagined relationship with Lee Polino. So it was just a really, really crappy defense, but maybe there wasn't much they could do. So anyway, Matthew Borges gets convicted of two capital counts, first degree murder, and I forget what the second one was. But he was ultimately sentenced to two life prison terms, which I guess would be good if he was actually going to serve them. Both of these sentences will run concurrently. So that means at the same time. So he's serving a 30-year sentence times two, but it only amounts to 30 years anyway. But don't forget now, Borges was convicted when he was 15, so he's a juvenile. And this throws the case into a massive loop. It's going to make you angry. So in 2012, 2013, Massachusetts followed on the heels of the U.S. Supreme Court, and they stated that juveniles could not be sentenced to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole. They need to have the ability to get out of prison for some reason. People like Matthew Borges, who cut people's heads off. So the maximum they can serve is 30 years and then they're eligible for parole. It's mandatory that they get a parole hearing after 30 years. They can be denied parole for various reasons. So I urge you to watch a clip where Borges is taken, he's face sentencing and he's taken from the courtroom. The kid doesn't flinch, he doesn't care. He walks out of the courtroom in handcuffs, probably never to see the free light of day again. And he just doesn't care. You got to check it out. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes for you. So I'm not sure if parole goes from the date of the crime or the date of your conviction. He was convicted at age 18, but he committed the atrocity at age 15. But if he serves 30 years from age 18, that makes him 48 when he's first eligible for parole. So if it goes from the date of the crime, he's actually 46 when he's eligible for parole. And again, there's no guarantee that he'll get out. And they usually don't get out on their first time. But you got to remember the case where Officer Jack McGuire was gunned down. He was gunned down by Dominic Sinelli, who had been in and out of prison, who had actually escaped prison and shot somebody while he was out. And then he goes back to the joint and gets paroled. So if you think this kid's not going to be on the street, you're crazy. Guys, there's a massive flaw in our juvenile justice system. If you remember the case of Colleen Ritzer in 2013, she was murdered by a student. She was a teacher. She was brutally murdered by this kid, and it's the same type of deal. He'll be eligible for parole in 30 years, as will Mr. Borges. You could be next to this guy on the bus. Your kids could be next to Matthew Borges on the bus on the way to work, and you'll never know it. I believe we have to alter our juvenile justice sentencing structure because you have to account for evil. Matthew Borges is evil. You take somebody who at least used to be your friend down to the river, stab him 76 times, and cut his head off, cut his hands off so he can't be identified, kid you used to go over his house and talk to his mother, you're crazy. You're insane. You're actually evil. And 
They should put this kid under the prison. But they didn't, guys. Let me tell you where he's serving his time. Matthew Borges is incarcerated at the Old Colony Correctional Center in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. And that's a medium security prison. That's kind of a stretch. It's not super hard time there. A lot of lifers go there. Neil Entwistle, who was a family annihilator out of Hopkinton, Massachusetts, is also in prison there. Matthew Borges, a couple other blemishes on the buttocks of society are housed there. And I don't think Matthew has much incentive to behave himself in prison. I don't know if he is. If you're in corrections and you know about it, shoot me an email, barry at bostonconfidential.net. Let me know how Mr. Borges is doing up there. If you want to know what life is like for lifers in Massachusetts state prisons, do a Google search including the words Howie Carr and Lifers Club. Howie's done several columns on the Lifers Clubs in these prisons. And what these guys do is they know they're not getting out, so they try to feather their nest as best as possible. They have Christmas dinners, they have birthdays, all kinds of stuff. It's not super hard time, but if you want some insight on it, Google Howie Carr's column on it, the Lifers Club, you'll get a good picture. Also, while you're Googling, Google a picture of Matthew Borges. Take a good look at him, because when he's 48, 51, he's going to be back on the streets, and he may be on the bus sitting across from you, so be careful. All right, guys, I'm going to leave it there. Another head-shaking case by Boston Confidential. I'll leave you there, guys. See you on the flip side. Talk to you later.